I will say that our freedom is very precious. Um, our way of life is very precious. And there are people continually striving to take this away from us, to disrupt our way of life, um, to turn us into something uh, that we don't really want to be. In our last episode, we learned about what it took for the United States of America to gain its freedom from Great Britain. This week, we learn about one of many ways it is maintained. Fighting for independence. A common image that may come to mind is a soldier, wearing his uniform, ready for battle. War has been around since the beginning of time. For the most part, it is waged in order to fight an opposing power and maintain people's freedoms. When we hear inspirational speeches of victory from our leaders, it's easy to feel a swell of pride. But with each conflict comes grave costs, in the form of death of soldiers and civilians, loss of homes, economic damage, and much more. It's as Douglas MacArthur once said, the soldier above all others prays for peace. For it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Without the soldier, there would be no one to fight and protect. A soldier's job is one of great importance. He walks into battle, into danger, and fights for the rights of the citizens of his or her country. In this episode, we are featuring veteran Major Ann Jones. Her experience in the U.S. Army Reserve was a unique one. She had a handcrafted career in the intelligence world. She worked on task forces such as the Cosmotropic Task Force, while at the same time filling critical roles on active duty. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. When I was five, I had several goals. I wanted to be a wife and a mom, I wanted to go to Asbury, and I wanted to be an Army nurse. So my whole academic career from kindergarten through high school was to get to Asbury and become a nurse. And then I was going to go into the Army once I graduated, so I'd commission as an officer. When I got to Asbury, I decided I didn't like nursing. And so that kind of took that dream away from me. And then uh, after college, I was a flight attendant, and then I worked for the Association of Christian Schools International, coordinating all their conferences overseas. It was in 2001, in the summer, um, I was working at a, one of our conferences, training educators and boarding parents to go overseas in preparing them for the mission field. And there was a coup that happened in Cote d'Ivoire. And the boarding parent um, teachers were at our conference, but their four girls were back at the school. And the government troops set up camp on one side of the school 
Loyalist troops set up camp on the other side and they were firing mortars overhead and there were 200 American kids inside that school. And so I was getting 30 minutes, every 30 minutes I was getting an update from uh, one of my friends who is, who is the, um, the computer guy there. And I mean, this is like CNN breaking news before breaking news really happened. I, I could have fed this, you know, to them. And um, I just thought, why isn't our embassy doing something about this? And eventually the, the French Special Forces came up and they rescued them. And then our embassy wanted to charge them $12,000 per person to evacuate them with a helicopter ride from Yamasukro. And so that was the catalyst for my joining the military. And I thought, you know, I could do more from an intelligence perspective, giving threat protection updates to these schools that have no voice at the embassy whatsoever. If they do, it's very rare. And so I thought, you know, rather than sitting behind a desk, let me go out and do something. And so then I started pursuing uh, going into intel with the military. And then 9-11 happened. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. Oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. running away very, very quickly. There are more explosions further down the building. This is so shocking, of course, to everybody watching. I, I've never seen anything like it. It literally blew itself into World Trade Center. The building's exploding right now. you got people running up the street. David, we're gonna, David, we're going to cut you off. President Bush is speaking. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. So um, I waited a year and I, I got a recruiter and I made him work for me for about three months researching everything. And the, the last question I asked myself before I swore in was, when I turn 50, will I regret not doing this? And the answer was absolutely. I, I would so regret it if I didn't do it. And so, you know, so it was a culmination of a dream, a childhood dream, and finding something where I could really be useful and had a passion. So I joined the military in November 22nd, 2002. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. So I left MEPS, it's a military entrance processing station in Denver, and I thought, what have I gotten myself into? You know, I had my dad come up for the swearing, and I called him like 12 hours before, you know, I, I, said, I said, Dad, I'm swearing in. I said, if you want to be there for it, come up, otherwise, you know, you can stay home. I said, but I'm doing this. 
So I swore in and it kind of gives you chills when you raise your right hand and swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, and you continue on and, and, then, um, and then they ship you off to basic training. And I had to go to basic training because I hadn't been to a, a school like ROTC, producing school, or, or the military academy. So I'd had no basic training sort of experience. And so I had to go to basic training and then officer candidate school, and then I could be a commissioned officer. So it's called the 90-day wonder. So you're an officer candidate. So I fly out to St. Louis. They pick me up in this big, huge bus, and they say, you know, don't, don't get food or anything, although they give you a voucher. Um, and they ship you off, and you get there, and it's dark. And I had on a, a coat, because I mean, it was January 2nd, it was super cold. So I had on some jeans, long sleeve shirt, a coat, and, and some boots. And no suitcase, just a duffel bag from my dad from Vietnam. And I thought I'd be real minimal, you know, because they said, don't bring civilian clothes. And there was some girl next to me. She had a sparkly suitcase, long nails, her hair done, big, huge hoop earrings, and heels on. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is she doing? So as soon as we got out to the bus, there are drill sergeants standing at the curb yeah, yelling. Sit real quick, you understand? Yes, sir. As soon as you get on that plane and you're on your way to Afghanistan, you understand? Yes, Some people are already crying, and I just dump off my duffel bag, and then I just get on and I sit down. <clears throat> and I'm just watching this whole mess, and, and the drill sergeant's trying to hurt everybody on the bus. We take this long ride, and we get to Fort Leonard Wood and they offload us and we have to file single file into the barracks. So these girls are dragging these huge suitcases <laughs> behind them and I thought, this is insane. I don't know what they think they're going to, but you know, this, this should be highly entertaining. So we get in and they hand us, they, they sit us down in a reception area and, and they hand us a packet and then all of a sudden they just start going through a briefing and they tell us, you know, if you, if you thought that you were here for fun and games, think again. You know, if you want to leave, you should have made that decision 12 hours ago. You know, and so they tell us what we're going to be doing. And then they process us through. Um, we get our blankets and some sheets and we're told to go make our bed and they shove us off to the bay and there we are. So I thought, well, this is, this is interesting, you know. And then the next two weeks was a reception area where they're training us how to stand, how to sit, how to make our beds, how to do everything. You know, and for me, that's old hat. I mean, we, I learned how to do that at home. But it was a struggle for a lot of people. You know, the struggle was real. They didn't know how to stand. They couldn't be quiet. You know, and here I was thinking, oh, this is kind of like the Air Force Academy or the, you know, West Point. And so, anyway, then we finally get to basic training and they, put us in this cattle car and they drive us all around the post to try to disorient us. And we're less than a mile from where we started. And then they offload us and they put us in these big rows with their duffel bags and then they start yelling at us. And they tell us to dump out our bags because they're looking for contraband. Any sort of contraband, cell phones, food, you name it. And at the same time they have a drill sergeant who's standing up on this big dais and he's yelling at us to start doing push-ups. And then we have to do flutter kicks. And so he's showing us how to do these things. And then 
these people are yelling at us over here. They're mingling in between us saying, what do you have in that bag? You know, dump out your bag. And I'm standing there because in all the shuffle, I lost the key to my lock. So I'm the only one standing there. And I can't do a thing except the exercises. And so at the end, they're like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, drill sergeant, I don't have my key. And they're like, well, just lay the bag down, do the exercise, and we'll do it later. And I was like, Roger. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm the only one there not really following instructions. And, uh, and so they finally wear us out after two hours. And then, and then we have to haul our, you know, they have to stuff everything back in their bags. And they haul us off to where, where we're going to be in our bays. And so I just have to stuff mine in my locker. And I can't do a blessed thing about it until they come and cut my lock. <laughs> So anyway, so here I was, day one, I was like, great, I'm going to stand out because I can't follow instructions. <laughs> but on the whole, I really love basic training. I understood the intent behind the training, so it wasn't hard for me. Um, now, a lot of other people, it was hard. My battle buddy, who was also my bunkmate, she was from a crack house in LA, and her name was, was Stephanie. And I don't know what's happened to her, but I would love to know. But she, it, it was really hard for her. And so I was an English major here at Asbury, and um, she always made fun of me for using big words. Well, I didn't think they were very big, you know, but she was an Ebonics master, and so I finally, figured out a way to reach out to her and I said I said all right I said why don't you quit making fun of me <clears throat> for my English and I said I'll teach you some words of English if you teach me some words of ebonics and she said deal so she said all right you have to use one word every single day in like five sentences so we did that so she learned some English and I learned ebonics so we got along great after that but it's it's a lot of mental discipline and that's really what what gets you through basic training. That's what gets you through officer candidate school. It's what gets you through all the training. It's what gets you through combat. It's the, what they're doing is they're trying to instill mental discipline because it really is mind over matter. They're honing your body. It's, it's basically yoga that they're teaching you. But they're honing your body through all of these different exercises, the smoke sessions, um, carrying the rifle, doing the ruck marches, doing PT every single day. They're making your body hardened into a battle-ready being. And then at the same time, they're working on your mind and your will. Basic training is really to break down the will of an individual so that he can be built back up and be part of a team. Um, they're looking for people who can obey and order when it's given because your life may depend on it in battle. And at that time, we knew that the invasion to Iraq was going to happen any minute. And it did, like a week after we left basic training. So I knew that as soon as I graduated from all of my training, I was most likely going to go to combat. So I was really eager to learn everything that I could because I didn't want to fail in battle. And I knew that somebody else's life might depend on it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. 
Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Uh, I was an operations officer for an army task force and so my daily duties were things uh, mostly administration and then operation kind of things. Um, it'd be anywhere from taking care of personnel actions to um, helping plan an op ward and um, making sure that all the plans that my director had went smoothly. And so that meant a lot of coordinating with various departments, um, people from all the different services like the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, and um, the combatant commands, which would be like SOUTHCOM, NORTHCOM, UCOM, Central Command, and then different intelligence agencies. And so we all worked on this task force. I knew that I most likely wouldn't be on the front lines. I wouldn't be shooting any insurgents. Um, I'm a, I probably wouldn't be around any bomb blasts. But I knew that I would be going into a combat zone. Um, so the danger was real. Rocket attacks, stray bullets. I mean, what if somebody overran where we were? So all of those were very real possibilities. If we are on a convoy somewhere, we could hit an IED but it was not likely that we'd be in that kind of a scenario. But in your mobilization training, you go through all the training of what you might find and learn how to react to it and how to respond to others who might be hurt. Um, so everybody goes through this kind of training before they go to theater. We were an interrogation unit, so we were going to be co-located with a prison, which is probably the most, you know, the, probably the safest place in theater um, because they don't want to really bomb their buddies. So, so we were going to be located on Camp Victory, and everybody who stays there they call Fobbits. It's takeoff on the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbits, you know. But we, it's a forward operating base, so Fobbits, and. Um, I really was in probably the safest location, both physically and for sexual safety. Um, we had to badge in and out of the, the little area that we were in, and nobody was allowed to come in unless they had the badge for that specific camp. Um, it's Camp Cropper, because they didn't want people gawking at all the prisoners, so it was really enclosed. And that's something that I'd prayed for before I left, was for physical and sexual safety, because there were a lot of sexual assaults in theater as well. It wasn't just, you know, the insurgents that we were worried about. And, and that's a really sad statistic, but it's, you know, it's, it's a reality. Um, I think we had about three rocket attacks on our little camp. 
that I can remember. And all of them were duds. They were Russian um, mortars, and so most of them never went off. But over at Camp Victory or Camp Liberty, there would be daily rocket attacks. And so you'd hear the sirens go off, and a big voice would come over the loudspeaker, and you could barely understand it. Um, but it'd be like, incoming, incoming. You know, so everybody would take cover, you'd put on your you know, battle armor, you'd get in a bunker or something like that. And then after a while, you'd hear, all clear, all clear. And so then, you know, life would resume. But, um, but the work was, the, the mission was important. And I knew that um, whatever I could do to support the unit would be, would be, you know, kind of exciting. And I wasn't afraid to go. Um, the transition to Iraq and back from Iraq were, were seamless for me, but that's what I'd trained missionaries to do, to leave the United States and go to the field. And so I just applied all of those principles when I left and then when I re-entered. And so for me, it, it, it really wasn't much of a big deal at all. Um, it was for a lot of other people, though. They, were, they didn't want to leave home. They didn't want to go to Iraq. They didn't want to go to some dusty, dry place. Um, they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be there. They wanted to be with their families. I thought it was a big, great adventure, too. I mean, when we arrived, and I was like, wow, I'm in the middle of where the Garden of Eden used to be. I mean, this used to be paradise. Um, I wonder if, you know, I'll see the cross sabers kind of like the angels with the flaming swords, you know, that you can't see. But it was like, this is where life began. You know, the, the in between the Tigris and the Euphrates River and the, the Gihon and, and the other river. But this is where it all was. And so for me, it was almost like a, I was there physically too, but spiritually it was, um, it was a really neat place to be in, you know. And, and so it made the Bible come more alive you know, when reading through again, because it's like, this is, this is the cradle of civilization. You know, this is where life began. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I learned a lot. It, it really stretched me professionally. Um, I was doing a job that, I was doing a logistics job, and I really wasn't trained for it in the military. I had done logistics in the civilian world, but it was, it really stretched and grew me and made a lot of great friends. I thought I might learn Arabic while I was there, but I learned Swahili and Hindi and Tamil instead. Um, you have a lot of interaction with third country nationals, so like the Nepalese, Bengali, Hindi, Tamil. And then all your guards are from either Tonga or Kenya or Uganda, and so they spoke Swahili. And then the Iraqi interrogators that we trained, they spoke Arabic, but I never had interaction with them. So yeah, so I would say it was a really, it was a great experience in, in those senses. Um, you know, I just met a lot of people, learned a lot of things, looked for ways to grow over there and not be afraid of whatever was there. Um, even the heat, you know, I acclimated to the heat and didn't use air conditioning. Um, and so again, it was, you know, how can I survive in this this land, but not just survive, really enjoy it. And how can I encourage my fellow soldiers? Um, how can I help them see that, you know, this is not the end of the world. Um, it's, it's a 10-month deployment. 
they can do it. They can go back and they can live normal lives. Um, and, and that was a challenge. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. Um, you know, when we go into a place with our force um, and people don't know what the purpose of the United States military is, uh, oftentimes I think that we're out to kill them. And we're not. We're out to get the bad guys, but we're one of the few militaries that views civilians as uh, as something to be, or people to be preserved. You know, we don't necessarily say, oh, they're just collateral damage, or let's just mow everybody down. And so I think that's one of the rewarding things when you go overseas and, and you help liberate a town or, or you save people. Um, you know, they're, they're really excited. And so you see a lot of little kids that come running up to you and say, U.S. Army, U.S. Army, and they wave a flag or something, you know, and they want candy. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's really neat. And it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to see, you know, distrust in people's eyes turn into, um, you know, a welcoming kind of sight. But it takes time to earn that trust, too. You know, and when you've been indoctrinated that these people are out to kill you, um, you know, that hampers efforts. I, I think people have misconceptions because they don't have contact with people. Now, this, these conflicts that we've been having, and the, the, starting with the Gulf War, that has brought the outside world more into the living rooms of all Americans, much more so than anything else. And I think one, one mistake that President Bush did was he told everybody to carry on as normal after 9-11 instead of asking everybody to sacrifice and join in. And it really did need to be a war of all Americans and not just the military. Um, but so many communities have been affected. I mean, at, at least maybe every town in America has either had someone join or someone die or, or something. So everybody has been affected. But whether or not you have direct contact with a soldier or, or someone, I, I don't know, maybe like New York City, do all the residents there have contact with soldiers? Probably not. So it's more likely like the little towns in America that, that know soldiers more than maybe the bigger cities. And so, yeah, when you don't know a soldier personally, um, I mean, you could think, oh, they just kill everybody, you know, uh, and that's not true. You know, or, oh, everybody gets PTSD from being over there, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, you know, overseas fighting wars. That's not true either. Um, for every good thing about the military, there's probably something bad, you know, and so the challenge is how do you, how do you balance that and how do you um, help the American people to understand what's necessary um, and what we are trying to prevent. And, and that's, a, that's what our senior leaders and our policymakers are responsible for doing.
something that I wish the military would change is how they approach problems. They're really good at solving operational problems. They're not so good at, I think, really taking care of soldiers. And by really taking care of soldiers, I don't mean the NCOs, command sergeant majors, who are in charge of soldier care, who are worried about or concerned with the feeding and the care of soldiers and the, the beans and the bullets. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mind and the spirit of soldiers. We have a lot of issues with sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, suicide, and um, other social issues, I guess you could say. You could probably classify them that way. And I see our Army trying to solve those problems, but the focus, in my opinion, is wrong. They're treating the symptoms. They're not looking at the root causes. And if they would look at the root causes, um, they'd be able to prevent a host of problems. Um, I remember when we were going off to Iraq, you know, the chaplains, this is preventive, right? The chaplains said, well, you know, um, you're going to experience a lot over there. You'll probably, you know, you may hit a few IEDs. You may see your buddies get killed. Um, your girlfriend back home may clean out your bank account. Your wife might leave you. Um, you know, when those things happen, come and see us. You know, we'll, we'll help you through them. What happened to helping prevent those situations from happening? What about helping a soldier with a mindset so that he can anticipate some of these issues? He's supposed to be over in a war zone and have his mind in the game. You know, his mind focused on battle, not worrying about what's going on back home. And I think that we could do a lot better job of, of teaching our soldiers what to do before those situations arise. Same thing with suicide. There's something that we teach um, missionaries and, and boarding parents and school administrators before they go overseas, and it was developed by Dave Pollack. And it's very simple, and it's part of the grief cycle, the depression cycle, and it really has helped a whole lot of people. That's not the way we teach it in the military. We teach them, you know, resiliency is, you know, thinking about good thoughts, um, you know, trying to work through situations before they arise, you know, and, you know, um, you know, encourage your buddy and, oh, let's see, what else can we do? We can write down things and, and we can focus on good stuff. That's all treating symptoms, though. That's not treating the root cause. So, I, you know, I, I used to teach, I used to teach ROTC at Asbury College, and I, I wove in some of these resiliency principles that we taught the missionaries um, into my classes. For my freshmen, I always um, give the final exam the week before everybody else does, and then I teach my final class because I want freshmen to know that if they fail, it's not the end of the world. And so I, I did that, and I, I taught them, you know, our, my version of suicide prevention, not the Army's version. And after class, 
I had a cadet come up to me and said, um, I've been thinking about committing suicide all semester. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, and um, I've tried, you know, I've, I've like tried to, to do it five times. And I said, why don't we sit down and talk? You know, and my heart was pounding and I just thought, thank you God for giving me the idea to do it this way, you know, and, and to, to sit down and, and teach this. I said, you know, if, if, um, if I had not taught this class, would she ever come up to me and talk to me about it? I, I don't know, you know, but I was just so thankful that she did. And so we were able to get her help the next year. But how many soldiers do we miss? How many soldiers do die because we don't really treat the root cause, the root disappointments? Everything starts with a disappointment, but we don't teach that. Um, our briefings are geared more towards senior leaders, people age 25 and above. I think they've lost sight of the fact that most of our soldiers are you know, who are directly engaged in combat are like 25 and below. And their abstract reasoning hasn't really kicked in at that point. And they need concrete examples. PowerPoint briefings just go right over their head, you know, but they look good for senior leaders and for everybody else. And so I'd like for the Army to focus on practical ways of dealing with suicide. Um, and I think it would really make a difference. Prevent it before they go over. You know, help them understand the grief cycle. Help them know that having these feelings when they see their buddy die, they're normal. It's not abnormal. And they can go see somebody for, you know, a chaplain or a buddy or somebody. But we don't teach the grief cycle either. They don't know that these feelings are normal. They don't know that anger is normal, that, you know, depression, you know, is, is normal. And so how can, we, how can we teach them that? So that's, that's something that I'd like to do you know, once I get out of the military, is try to see if we can't introduce the six Ds into suicide prevention instead of all this resiliency training that really focuses on symptoms. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. I love this country. And Dad always used to say, why do I need to go anywhere else in the world? America is the greatest country that there is. I don't need to leave. <laughs> and I always used to think, Dad, that's crazy. There's a whole world out there. But after visiting so many countries around the world and being in Iraq and seeing what it is we're trying to achieve there, you know, I'm very thankful to come back to the United States. And I'm very, very thankful that a group of men decided to stand up to King George and declare independence from Britain. God has really blessed this country for so long. Um, I mean, look at all that we've been able to achieve. 
a, a huge country with vast resources, and we have, we've led the world in technological advancements, um, in production and industry, uh, policy. I mean, we've exported it around the world. We've exported other things too that aren't, you know, necessarily the greatest things, but people come to us. People, illegal immigrants are coming here because they know that America is a land of promise and that they can make something of themselves or they can make money, they can do a job. There's the freedom here to be anything that you want to be. I, I was talking with some guy who is now a very successful um, entrepreneur and he came here to the United States about 10 years ago and had $3 in his pocket. And he worked really hard doing three different jobs, put himself through school, learned the language, and now he is a multi-millionaire. Unbelievable. In what other country can you achieve that? And so, you know, I'm very thankful to have been part of a, you know, a military that strives to secure those freedoms for others. I'm very thankful that, uh, you know, we have the freedom to, to speak and to um, think what we want. So many other people don't. And you see that when you go around the world. And I, I pray that, you know, we remain that way. What I've worked on will influence national security for 25 to 50 years in the future. I will say that our freedom is very precious. Um, our way of life is very precious. And there are people continually striving to take this away from us, to disrupt our way of life, um, to turn us into something uh, that we don't really want to be. They're trying to kill us. Uh, they don't like us. They don't like the way we live. They don't like the way we worship. Um, and they want dominance over us. And so, you know, I've been able to do a small part to help preserve that and to identify threats around the world, um, threats to Americans around the world. And I think that's going to be one of the things that I miss when I do retire. Um, I won't be a green suitor doing it. I may have the chance to be a civilian in that kind of a job. But um, it really does take a, a concerted effort between civilians and the military to preserve those liberties. Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. They are your rallying points to build courage when courage seems to fail, to regain faith when there seems to be little cause for faith to create hope when hope becomes forlorn. But these are some 
of the things they do. They build your basic character. They mold you for your future roles as the custodians of the nation's defense. They make you strong enough to know when you are weak and brave enough to face yourself when you are afraid. They create in your heart the sense of wonder, the unfailing hope of what next, and the joy and inspiration of life. They teach you in this way to be an officer and a gentleman. Around 180,000 men and women enlist in the military each year. What will they experience? What struggles and victories will they have? We cannot be sure, for each journey is different. But I want to take a moment to say thank you to all of you who have or are serving our country. Without you, we would not have our liberties, our rights, or our safety. If you'd like to learn more about Anne, we are featuring a segment from her retirement speech on our website at profilespodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search Profiles Podcast. I would also like to take a moment to thank Ross Bugden. Many of the songs you heard in this episode and in our last episode were composed by him. Seriously, he's a music genius, so I would highly encourage you, if you're looking for some great tunes, to head over to YouTube and find his channel. Just search Ross, R-O-S-S, Bugden, B-U-G-D-E-N. I look forward to having you join us next time for the third installment of our independent series. See you then.